I had a, uh, a pretty, I would say, non-traditional childhood. Uh, I grew up in the middle of nowhere, um, so about 90 miles away from the nearest uh, mall or movie theater or civilization in uh, southern Arkansas. Um, and so that's where I, uh, you know, I lived until I was 13. Um, there wasn't a lot around. I mean, I remember when I grew up, we had, you know, three, three TV stations and, uh, you know, not, not a ton to do. Um, so I spent a lot of time, um, out in the woods, uh, and my parents actually got me my first computer, um, when I was eight years old. Um, so that got me into technology. I mean, frankly, there wasn't, it was by default, there wasn't anything else to do. Uh, What, what, what did your parents do? Uh, so my father, um, was a forester actually uh he works in the woods um what, what does that even him. what does that entail like what is that what is the day-to-day of that job for folks like me and i'm sure 99 <laughs> percent of our audience that probably has not uh experienced that or met someone who's a forester yeah it's uh you know green side up uh keep the trees growing um you know in the south you're growing loblolly pines um, which you grow in plantations um, over the course of 17 years. So, you know, you plant, um, you thin, um, you eventually harvest, and then you burn the track, um, and then you replant again. And, uh, you know, it's really about managing a team of loggers, of planters, of, uh, you know, it, it's it's pretty wild to be a, you know, five-year-old growing up in Arkansas, and I remember driving four-wheelers with uh, tanks of kerosene on the back, which is what they use to uh, to burn tracks. And I can only imagine, like, you know, I have a five-year-old now. I, I can't even imagine <laughs> doing something like that. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's it was it was it was fun and very different from uh, I feel like a lot of uh, a lot of my peers, certainly in the tech uh, tech world. And I'm guessing you didn't know any different, right? Like, did you know out in the world kind of, you know, I mean, had you like traveled when you were a kid to know oh, like what city yeah. life was like? Or, I mean, look, my parents didn't, I mean, you know, they did, did an awesome job of getting me exposure to the outside world. I think a lot of my, the people in the town where I lived, I mean, it's a tiny town. There are 1,500 people in the town or about 5,000 in the whole county. Um, you know, there wasn't a lot of travel. There wasn't a lot of exposure to the outside world. Um, but you know, my parents, you know, we, you know, went to high school together in Delaware. You know, they grew up in the suburbs of Philly. So, you know, they had an educated upbringing. Um, you know, they just decided they wanted to live out in the woods. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's that's where I grew up. But they did a really amazing job exposing me to a lot of things as a kid that, you know, I would say the uh, average person or even the uh, 90th percentile person in South Arkansas doesn't get exposed. exposed yeah. To. And, and besides, you know, kind of playing outside and driving, you know, trucks with kerosene on them. What else did you like to do as a kid? Like what, what else were you into? Um, well, I got into video games pretty early on and I got into technology pretty early on. Um, as I said, largely by default, uh, there's not a lot else to do uh, in South Arkansas. And so I, um, you know, I, I got my first computer in 1994, um, you know, had an internet connection, not a very good one, uh, got into gaming communities, uh, started playing, started modding games. Um, and you know, that really kind of was my entree into, I guess, technology. And what were some of these games like in, in the, in the mid nineties? I mean, and were you playing them? on the computer, like online? Yeah, I've always been a PC gamer, partly because, you know, that's what I had. I had a PC. Uh, I don't even think I knew what a console was uh, until I, uh, until I got to college. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it was, it was primarily, you know, slow strategy games, things like that. Uh, you know, big player of games like civilization, AOE, uh, you know, and various derivations of those. Um, so played a lot of that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, did a lot of modding and, uh, building on top of stuff like that. I just want to know why I didn't pursue forestry. 
<laughs> you know, I think it requires a special type of person to go into their father's business. <laughs> and that there are some people that see that and say, like, that's what I want to do. I want to follow in those footsteps. Yeah. And there are other people who say literally anything else. And I don't think that has a lot to do with the profession and more about the personality of the person. And I'm definitely in the latter bucket. Yeah. Uh, I never even thought about it. Yeah. Yep. And and so you mentioned 13, I think, was when you ended up moving out of Arkansas. Was that right? Is that right? And, and yeah, so absolutely. what happened there? Like, did you end up? And that's like kind of when you're, what, in middle school, almost starting high school, maybe? Yeah, just your high school. School. yeah so I went to, um, uh, my parents moved to Shreveport, Louisiana, um, which, you know, on the spectrum of Los Angeles and New York is not a particularly exciting place. On the spectrum of rural South Arkansas is like, massive you know global metropolis so uh i went to uh uh i went to school there and um you know that was a definitely uh a new world and um you know got me in with you know i think for the first time you know kids that were also uh into things like uh like video games and hacking and uh you know doing things a little bit different other than hunting and fishing Brad, did you know that at the time that you were, you know, I, you know, in college or around these people that, you know, there would be some sort of a, you know, whether it's career or some sort of a business that would be coming out of your interest in the gaming and, you know, quote unquote computer world? No, not at all. I, I don't think I at that time really had a conception of business. Um, you know, the closest I probably had is my, my grandfather on my, my mom's side is a, is an entrepreneur. He started, uh, you know, much more in, in kind of the, the old school mid, mid century sense. Uh, he started a, uh, chain of auto parts distributors. Um, and you know, that was an inspiration of mine of, you know, he was very is it a company that we might know or, no, I, he he sold it and retired in 1980. Um, I, was, I was like, maybe it's like AutoZone family money. I don't know. <laughs> no, 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 not that. Brad, not that kind of. Brad's money. just no, you know investing his wealth. You know. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I'm sure he did fine, but it, not 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 nearly of that order of magnitude. Right, probably got it. Okay. several. Good perspective. Several Good perspective. Yes. Um, no, so it's it's but that that was still an example of you know, yeah. you know nobody in uh, in South Arkansas was doing that. Right. So, uh, but no, I, I don't think I had a direct, you know, conception of business. I, I, I wanted, I always wanted to do things my own way and do things differently. And, you know, um, kind of surprise and delight people, uh, you know, with the mods I built for games. Um, you know, I really enjoyed people using what I had built. Um, you know, I really enjoyed kind of getting, uh, getting out there, seeing things I had built and things I had done, uh, touch a lot of people. Um, so, you know, beyond that, I don't really think I had a business, you know, any sensibility of what the right. business world could be. What's an example of one of some of those things that you were working on that you said, you know, touched a lot of people? Oh man, I'm trying to think of uh, of of specific examples. I mean, you know, they would just be uh, little modifications for these games um, that would improve the experience or create new scenarios or new things people could play. Um, I spent probably hundreds of hours doing that as a kid. Hmm. So, do you taught yourself how to code, or I mean, did it have anything I mean, to do with coding? Or I think from from the vantage point where I sit today, coding would be a a, a pretty, uh, you know. Uh, over overestimate for what it was uh it was definitely programming of a sort um but you know using uh a lot of the tools languages that were in these games kind of uh you know messing around with um with what we had uh so it was um it was fun but you know it doesn't i can get more into things i did in gaming further down the road uh, but at that stage i wasn't doing anything particularly sophisticated 
Yeah. Um, you know, people listening might kind of draw the conclusion, you know, growing up kind of where you grew up uh, in, you know, kind of you know, the secluded area in Arkansas and then also being into computers as a kid, like they might think, you know, you might be like antisocial or an introvert. Is that is that something that's true or are you like a pretty social extroverted person? as well um because oh, i was the reason i ask is because people think i think there's a misconception or just like something like a you know a thought that people in business or entrepreneurs are always like super extroverted i'm just kind of curious what it is what you i was i was painfully introverted i was i i, I did not have a lot of friends uh i you know i was very much what you what you think of i spent a lot of time in my room playing and building video games. Um, you know, it wasn't really until high school, college that I kind of trained myself and said, Hey, this isn't what I want with my life. I want to be out there more. I want to be doing more things. I, you know, part of creating cool things and making an impact on the world is actually getting out there. Um, and you know, the social piece of it, uh, you know, physical engineering and social engineering. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I train myself to be an extrovert. How, how did you do that? I'm curious. Cause I feel like, you know, there was a lot of people around all of us. I'm sure a lot of folks listening that when they're growing up in middle school, junior high, high school, there's all these people that at the time, frankly, like we we're like, Oh, like, what are these? Fo-? Like, you know, they're kind of weird, you know, like, even though now it's like, everybody's like, everybody's weird. And you know, you know, you kind of realize cool to be that weird now. Yeah, yeah. Now, now it's like if you're yeah. not weird, you're like, what's wrong with you? Um, oh, you're boring. <laughs> so weird, weird is a new normal. Um, but how did you train yourself? Because I feel like I'm I'm having the opposite moment in my life of like from I was I am super extroverted, and I'm like, how do I become less super extroverted? Yeah. Right, and I and I feel like there's a lot of people that have that like you know, um. I guess I don't want to call it an alteration, but that moment I feel like in life where they're like, well, maybe I want to try this out you know, and I want to be a little different. <laughs> yeah. You know? and I feel, I wonder how that feels like. Well, I mean, it, it, the funny thing is like, I actually feel like I've become much less extroverted, you know, since having kids, particularly since having my second. And maybe it's just like, it's a life stage hitting the back half of your thirties. Right. Like, you know, it, you really, I don't want to say just, retrench your social circle but like there's just fewer people who matter Mm -hmm. and you really want to invest and spend the limited time you have on the people who really matter um so but i think that's happened uh largely by default where whereas you know training myself to be a little more uh extroverted was a very intentional effort you know one thing i did um which i would really i mean anyone who is uh, finds themselves in a similar situation of maybe being in a school they don't like, maybe being in a, you know, in high school and middle school in a scene they don't like. Um, there are a lot of competitions and contests and um, that involve a lot of travel. Uh, and one way I got out of South Arkansas is I signed up for all of them. Um, you know, I even signed up and found myself in this uh, former Soviet science competition um, it was only the second year that America had fielded a team. Um, and you know, that I went to Australia to compete for that. Um, yeah. What kind of competitions are these? This was, I mean, I would sign up for anything. Um, like I was just singing like singing or what was that? Like singing competitions? No, 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 no. Like anything <laughs> academic. I mean, I was, I'm not, a you know, I was not, and still I'm not a particularly like uh, athletic person. Um, and have absolutely no singing talent. Um, you know, I'm generally talentless, but I can (laughs) bust my ass and memorize a lot of things or, uh, you know, I'm pretty good intuiting things and I'm really good taking tests. So, and there's a surprising number of competitions for like a sixth grader where you can like do really well if you memorize things and take tests well. And I did all of them. And so I just did it as a way to like get out, meet people, like meet other interesting folks. Like, uh, you know, you're in ninth grade, you're in 10th grade, you're painfully awkward. You've got a pretty 
uh, limited social circle in South Arkansas um, at the time, Louisiana. Um, yeah, it's a good way to get out there and meet people and it forces you to be an extrovert. Yeah. So I'm guessing you were a pretty good student in school. I was, yes. So um, what, I guess, what did you end up doing after uh, high school? Like, what did you want to study? Like, what what was kind of the, the, the path that you were technically wanting to be on? Yeah, I had no idea. I, you know, had just done this Soviet, ex-Soviet competition, which was in biology. So people told me I was good at it. So that's what I decided to major in. Um, I, I went to Yale. Um, and, you know, two years in, I decided I didn't particularly like biology. And, you know, a year in, I decided that what I run, really wanted to do is start a biotech company. And then I realized that the biotech part of it actually didn't matter at all. I really just wanted to start a company. Mm. And, uh, you know, I just found myself doing it almost by default. Um, first thing I did, and this was my freshman year of college, um, found a way to make money buying antique furniture from the school, like old surplus Yale inventory, mostly card catalogs. Like they were renovating their library. They had a ton of these like giant 400 pound pieces of wood. That, you know, remember the Dewey Decimal System where, like, you pull out the little uh, cabinets and they have all the cards in there and that's how you find a book? They're getting rid of all their card catalogs. These beautiful things weigh about 400 pounds. And they were selling them for 50 bucks a pop. So my friend, Matt Reimer, who went on to be one of my co-founders of General Assembly, uh, and I bought as many as we could. We'd somehow moved them all to a warehouse in East Haven, Connecticut. And How many were there? 30, 40, 50. And there was like a department at the school that sold this to people? Or? Yeah. Oh, department okay. of Traffic Receiving and Stores at Yale. And turns <laughs> out all universities have one of these that just deals with like surplus furniture and mostly just sells it to employees. Crazy. Who would have thought? And But we were students showing up saying – we will take all of it. And we got on a first name basis with the dude who ran the warehouse because we would show up with cash <laughs> and a U-Haul and he and could go home early on Friday. Who was your, who were your customers? So interesting. We were, were like, who buys this stuff? Well, turns out middle-aged women <laughs> love this shit. And we would, we would buy a card catalog for 50 bucks and we would sell it. We started on eBay. We eventually built our own e-commerce site. We built our own brand called Aloysius Properties. We would sell this shit for 1500 a pop. Oh my God. 2000 <laughs> plus shipping. <laughs> so my question is, why didn't you just go like, like, to every college in the country and just create a business out of this. Cause those margins sound pretty amazing. They're great. We eventually ran out of furniture. <laughs> wow. Because it's crazy know, to think of the things that were new, weren't becoming old quick enough. Right. So the problem is there's, there's some, and we tested all of this. There's some stuff that moves. So if it's wood, if it looks antique, if like you think Harvard, Yale, Princeton, like you think big antique mahogany furniture, that did great. But really, a lot of what they had was like 1970s office furniture. Yeah. Which weirdly would be cool today. Yeah. That's like, like mid-century modern now. Right. Now all the mid-century yeah. modern stuff, that's what people want. Yeah. But in 2004, that was going in the trash heap. Mm. And, you know, we couldn't move it. Yeah. And... um so we eventually ran out of furniture, but it was a it was extraordinary business while we had it. I'm kind of curious. I'm curious how you even got to this point because I know you mentioned your grandfather was an entrepreneur. You know, it sounds like I don't know how much kind of that played a role in your mindset and wanting to be an entrepreneur, start a business. But you you mentioned you talk about how it's kind of a gradual thing from 
you know, going into biology and then just eventually just wanting to run a company, any company, um, as long as it was yours, what was, what was going through your head and why do you think that was the case? You know, when I think about some of the other things I did through high school and college, um, I don't necessarily believe I was ever particularly motivated by, you know, I want to start a massive business or an empire. I mean, a lot of the things we did were like we, I was involved in a group that did huge pranks. Um, you know, we, we did a lot, we did a lot of, funny things. And, and, and part of that goes back to what I said earlier about just like doing things that touch a lot of people that surprise them, that delight them. And that's kind of what I wanted to do. And if I made some money along the way, that was great. And so I feel like certainly back then in those early years, so much of what I was doing was just driven by creativity and wanting to do something different and interesting. And if it happened to involve making money. I wasn't averse to making money in any way, shape or form. Uh, and in fact, it was exciting to make money. Mm. Um, that was a pretty new thing for me. And when we started seeing the margins of the furniture business, uh, that was, you know, that was certainly a wake up call. The margins yeah. I feel like have still kept up even with new products in furniture. It just, it's just, they probably buy for a hundred bucks and sell for 7,000. Oh, I, I mean, the, the funny thing is, and I'll do a little plug for my friend, Matt's new business. Uh, he's now gone back into the furniture business. Finally, after, <laughs> you know, 20 years, uh, with his, his, his fiance started a company called ZZ Driggs, which is a high-end furniture rental business. Uh, they're doing really well. Um, and he's, uh, he's, he's helping to run it. So, um, you know, Definitely, I would say much higher quality furniture uh, <laughs> than what we were getting from Yale, um, and I believe a much more sustainable business. I don't think they're going to run out anytime soon. Were you Were you doing this all four years? I think I think you said it was. This was like your freshman year, right? You started this. Yeah, it probably took. It, you know, it's probably doing it for two, two and a half years. Crazy, and so uh, so I guess so. You graduate, I'm assuming, with this degree in biology. What did you? What what, what comes next? Oh, by that point, I had started a game development studio. Okay. Yeah, yeah, which I started um, once again with 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 Matt. Um, we built uh, massively multiplayer online games um, in Flash. We had this thesis that um, casual gaming um, and multiplayer gaming would intersect, uh, and that rivalries and that basically the manifestation of that is sports. Um, you know, online sports. Uh, we basically got esports all wrong. Um, we thought it would come from the casual competitive angle as opposed to, uh, you know, Korean dudes who spend 110 hours a week doing it. So we got it totally backwards. Yep. Um, so we started this game studio uh, that made basically MMOs in Flash. Our first game was a risk-like game um, called Go Cross Campus, uh, where colleges battled against each other. Uh, each turn was a day. So these tournaments would take two, three months. We got sponsors. Um, we basically ran it like we were the online NCAA. Um, and it did, uh, it got crazy user numbers. Never, I mean, you know, 20, 30,000 concurrent players, um, which was a lot for that type of game back at that time. Um, never really figured out a business model for it. I mean, sponsorship dollars were okay. Uh, until 2008 when they went away. Um, so unfortunately, that business went under in the global financial crisis, which was uh, only a year after I graduated school. Wow. Um, you mentioned Matt a couple times, and sounds like this is like, you know, it's been a recurring theme of you guys starting businesses together. How did you two meet? Um, and what do you think is the reason why you were so well suited to kind of run a company together? Yeah, totally. Um so we met in college. Uh, we were actually part of a kind of um, mischief and urban exploration group, uh, you know, where we would do pranks on the college campus and things like that. And when I say that our furniture business really started as an extension of the pranks, uh, I'm, I'm not I'm not joking. It really did. 
So, but um, what happened? You guys just meet and you decide let's just do pranks. Like, how? What was like that? What was like the genesis of all? Yeah, I mean, there was kind of a group that was already going on that did it, and okay. uh, you know, we got to know each other through that. Um, and um, yeah, so so we we, we work together really well. Um, you know, I tend to, you know, I tend to be much more operational. Um, you know, I love operating. I love getting into the weeds. I love, you know, numbers, quantitative side. I mean, Matt is a, is a magician. Um, you know, he's an extraordinary creative and extraordinary marketer. Um, so I think we, we do have a very complimentary skill set. Um, and you know, we had, I would say the furniture business was, uh, you know, a nice single, uh, the, you know, game development shop, uh, unfortunately got crushed by the GFC that didn't go anywhere. It was a strike. Um, and then, you know, general assembly, uh, which we started together in, uh, in 2010, um, was a, was a real win. Uh, Brad, what, what were you feeling like in 2008, you know, during that GFC, you know, was it, you know, apprehension? Was it, you know, excitement? What, what were you feeling? I mean, like you had, you know, this game development studios, you know, not succeeded at this point. Yeah. So, you know, what comes next? I mean, put us where your mind was in that time. Oh, I mean, well, first of all, I was, I was extraordinarily broke, like broke beyond broke. Um, this is, you know, I, all of my money had gone into living expenses into the game development studio. I wasn't really paying myself a salary for a long time. So I remember a lot of that time was just, you know, survival doing little, you know, contract gigs, someone would pay me 500 bucks to, you know, advise them on game design, uh, you know, get a couple of those in a month. Um, so it was a, it was a very, very, very tough time. Um, you know, I was, uh, and it was, it was not fun. It was extremely stressful and, uh, you know, not something, we didn't have many employees at the game development studio, but, you know, winding that down was, extremely hard and then kind of being left you know living in new york uh no family here not a lot of options um really scraping by was uh that was that was a really hard time um at, at that point did your mindset sh mindset shift at all from how you used to think and feel in college where it's like i don't really care if i'm making money off of this thing i just want to have fun and touch a lot of people and if it didn't, why not? Like, I'm just kind of curious because that's a moment I feel like, you know, you're a little older now, you know, friends or people around you are working full time, making probably great salaries in their corporate jobs. And, and you're kind of trying to figure things out. Like what, how did you, what was going through your mind at that time? Well, remember it was the GFC. So nobody who graduated in 08 by and large was, you know, working you know, earning great salaries in their corporate jobs. I mean, right. my peers who had gone into banking, you know, had all been furloughed or, you know, laid off, you know, similar to, you know, the, the only people who were doing all right were the people who went on to grad school, which that, that wasn't what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, so I didn't necessarily feel that I was unique in, in, in my circumstance. And, you know, I just focused on keep the burn rate, keep the personal burn rate low uh, don't do anything that, you know, I knew I wanted to start another company. I knew I wanted to take a big swing. Don't do anything that jeopardizes my ability to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, at one point then moved in, uh, with my then girlfriend, now wife, um, you know, which was, awesome and having that partnership really helped me get through it um and so it's it, it's you know I, I scraped by and made it happen um and you know some of those contracts that i had to do uh you know were uh were were, were pretty miserable work um but it's uh you know i got by and you know was able to move on to the next thing which uh fortunately ended up working Brad, so how did you guys come up with, you know, the idea for General Assembly and, you know, obviously talk to us about a little about what it was early on? Yeah, totally. So it was it was many things early on. Um, and, you know, what General Assembly became was 
you know, an evolution out of, of what it originally was, which was a combination of co-working events, education. We really wanted, and we called it uh, an urban campus where we wanted to gather a lot of people in the tech community in New York, which was very nascent at the time. Um, we wanted to gather them in one place. So you had Matt and I kind of working on this co-working concept. Um, this was pre-WeWork. Um, you know, we met up with our other two co-founders around that time. Adam, who was very interested in education and the role education um, could play. And Jake, who was also in uh, the tech community, had just um, just gotten his MBA uh, and was very interested in, in what we were doing from all those angles. So we decided to join forces and say, hey, this all makes sense in one place. Um, at the time, it was sort of a unique moment in time um, because office space was extraordinarily cheap and owners would basically pay you to come and take space. So we found, um, it was around 16,000 square feet at 902 Broadway. Um, it's right at 21st and, and Broadway in Flatiron in Manhattan, which is kind of the hub of what is now the Silicon Alley, New York tech scene. But back then that wasn't really a thing. Um, and, you know, we jumped on it and signed the lease. And we raised, we'd raised a little bit of seed money. We'd gotten a grant from New York City. We got a lot of deposits from a bunch of startups who wanted to work out of our cool co-working space. Remember, once again, this is pre-WeWork. So there wasn't a lot of co-working in New York. And the co-working that existed was like cube farms. Mm. There was really nothing of quality space for people to work. And how did you um, end up meeting um, Jake and Adam? And, and how did you guys conceive this idea to, together? Like, what was that initial process like? You know, I don't necessarily, I, I, I think Matt found both of them. I mean, he is a preeminent networker. And I think he somehow in the tech community, as he was evangelizing this idea, found both of them and brought them in. Um, and we really didn't see General Assembly from the beginning as a, as a startup. We saw it as a, a space, a cash flow positive thing that would raise our profiles and, you know, help us uh, get into whatever we were going to do next. So the plan so was just really like run this on the side, run this on the side, like create yeah. the space and just go on and do our things in our career. Exactly. Exactly. So we never saw it as a startup. We never set it up as a startup. Um, I remember because at one point we had to convert it from an LLC to a C-Corp. You know, once we realized that we we're actually going to raise money and try to scale this thing. Um, but one thing we did, which was really smart, is we built a classroom out. Um, because we wanted, we always wanted there to be an education component to it. Um, because we saw a lot of what was happening in tech was pretty undemocratic. Um, it was, you know, people who had been coding their entire lives. Uh, people who grew up like I did, uh, you know, taking these high-paying tech jobs. Uh, it was very, very tough if you didn't have that background to get into tech. There weren't tech job boards back then. There weren't incubators and accelerators back then the way there are today. Mm. And so we wanted to democratize that and really create a space and a venue for people who didn't have tech backgrounds to get exposed to technology. So, and that the from that, I feel like one, th one thing I always noticed about GA and just like friends that went through the programs were that, you know, all the things that they maybe didn't get out of a four year college degree that they should have probably gotten, right? Like the experience or just like the knowledge around a particular area that was super relevant at that time. Like for example, UI UX design, right? Like yeah. you might've been a designer in college at the time. I don't, you know, early 2010s, they, they didn't have courses necessarily around that stuff. And especially in a lot of the kind of other, you know, not the top tier colleges, if you will. And so people were sort of going there to actually yeah. 
take, get the knowledge that they needed to do the job well, right? And right. everything else didn't really matter that they got in their four-year degree as much. Oh. And so how did, how did, you know, was that something that, I guess, was that the thing that really took it off? Like what, what was kind of the, I know you mentioned the co-working side and like these startups yeah. signing up for it. What was that kind of that thing that made, made it more than a side project for you guys? Edu- education. You're exactly right. So in that classroom, we started initially in a small way. We would offer a class every evening, then two classes every evening, teaching things like UX design, JavaScript, how to start your venture, um, you know, how to apply for a tech job, what is product management? Like we would teach all these things and we would iterate. Like we would learn like, hey, here are the things that work and here are the things that don't work. And we would just keep doubling down on the things that worked. And the thing that really shifted it from a side project to, and made us say, oh, wow, we're onto something is when we launched our first full-time course, which was a big leap to say, hey, we're actually going to go out and offer a three-month full-time program that will teach someone enough programming to get them a junior-level job as a programmer. But how did you get, you know, the, the part about that is, uh, you know, the big question mark, if let's say I was starting that business or whatever, would be, you know, how do you get the trust and the you know, like the accreditation, if you will, like, you know, of like these colleges that these companies know so well that, you know, if someone coming out of this college is, is, is qualified to, to have a position here, but then, you know, you have general assembly come along and, and maybe at the time, obviously no one really knew about it, you know, these companies until they sort of caught wind on it. And, and over time you built that trust, but how was it in the beginning being able to kind of build it up to that point? Well, by the time we launched our first full-time course, we had been offering classes for over a year. So we'd actually built, one thing we did really well is building an email list, building a lot of recognition and love in the startup and tech community. We would host events every weekend, hackathons, startup events, pitch events. We would throw, we had a happy hour every Friday night. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, uh, kind of a special moment in time in, in, in New York tech, those happy hours. Um, and I think over time we earned the trust of a lot of people who they would come to a class and it was good. They would come to another class and it was good. They would come to another class and it was good. They said, Hey, you know what? I'm going to quit my job and become a developer. I'm going to quit my job and go into tech. And the way they did that is they signed up for our course. And, and you know what's interesting, and I, and I, I, not, I noticed this too early on, was you guys, I think, if I'm not mistaken, you guys were going after people who are already like in the workforce, professionals at companies yeah. teaching these courses. And so that's a super interesting thing when it comes to like a hiring pipeline, where it's like they're in the companies that perhaps the people taking these courses want to go work for after GA. And was that, I mean, was that like a, a thought out plan by you guys or that was oh, what absolutely. it was? I mean, is we, look at the, we look at the whole thing as a flywheel. And this particularly as we got more into enterprise, into larger, working with larger companies and training their workforces is a really important part of the flywheel of, and, and this has always been really important to us. And I think it's one of the reasons GA succeeded is, you know, a lot of schools just scale up and as long as they can charge tuition, they're going to keep growing. We always in religiously measured outcomes because if people are signing up for a three month course and they don't get a job at the other end, and they're not happy with what they were able to achieve, we're not going to succeed. And so we were religious about measuring outcomes, not just did they get a job, but did they get a job within 90 days? And did they get a job within the field in which they were trained? And so we were the first to come out with an independent third-party audited statement. Um, about our outcomes and our success, our placement success. Um, and that's what was always super, super important for us for day one is a relationship with the hire with, with, with employers too. Brad, there's no doubt, obviously that GA found success and we'll talk more about it, but you know, I'm putting myself just for a moment in the, the shoes or eyes of an investor and think to myself, 
you know, you have these guys that are, you know, recent graduates, you know, two from Yale, two from I don't know where, um, with not much work experience, frankly, besides what they've built entrepreneurially. And, you know, during the GFC, why would I invest with guys, these four people that they're telling people how to get a job when they haven't necessarily got a job? They're telling people how to, you know, do UX and product design and management when they don't have a lot of years under their belt either. Again, I'm, I'm not saying yeah, really. you guys are in quality, but like, what the hell were you guys thinking? You know, like, I mean, right? Like, well, one of the things we did well at General Assembly, and it 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 definitely decreased our level of stress, is we built a cash flow business first through the and rentals of the space. Off education. I mean, right. the, the space was profitable, but like education was the big driver of revenue pretty early right. on. Because right. the space, I mean, we filled it up and that capped it yep. out. Um, and actually, I think in 2013, we needed more office space. So we ended up shutting the co-working down and moving our own team into it. Um, so we always raised after the fact. So... You know, and I, I, I advise entrepreneurs a lot who are thinking about raising. And I'm like, well, the easiest raise is when you don't need it. And when the facts and the data speak for themselves. So I think we really could have been at, you know, certainly at, at a certain stage, at the early stages, like we could have been anybody. And the data was pretty convincing. The growth, the unit economics, the narrative. Uh, and, 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 and that's the best way to go out and race is when the data, the business growth speaks for itself. And by that point we had hired executives, we had people around the table who were helping us out. Right. And, and obviously that's, that's a, obviously from, from a standpoint of raising that money, like in terms of having leverage, it's a great place to be if you're looking to raise money. But, uh, do you find that often when uh, do, like companies are, are raising big rounds when they don't need to? Is it just to scale faster or? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that the, the best rounds are raised by companies who don't need to raise. You know, it's really about where that money coming in is really about incremental investment. It's about acquisitions. It's about building a fortress of a balance sheet. It's not because they're burning so much money that, they absolutely have to raise. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like and so, they can self-sustain, but it just, right. they might be missing out on certain opportunities if they don't. Yeah, raise exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah. Okay. We could keep running the business. So we don't need to raise this round, but if we raised it, here are the things we could do. You know, And certainly by 2013, so three years in, it was clear it was a bit of a land grab for right. tech education and training and so, you know, at that point, it was even though we did have a sustainable business, we needed to raise because we needed to keep up with all the other operators in the space. And Brad, what was your role at GA as, you know, the company continued to grow? Yeah, totally. So I, um, my original assignment was to run and grow the education business. Um, when that became the bulk of the business, uh, I took a chief product officer role. So Jake was the CEO uh, and I ran product. Did you go, I know it was four of you, right? When you started, did you, how was that experience? Like, you know, you, you hear arguments of, of, of <laughs> having a lot of co-founders or not having, so uh, I mean, for you guys, how was that experience? Cause it sounds like initially there were different parts of the business where you can kind yeah. of focus on that. But as everything kind of converged into like this education thing, did that cause any issues or problems? Well, it's also situational, you know. I think each one of us brought something pretty unique to the table. Um, so in that particular situation, I don't regret the way we did it. But I wouldn't, in the abstract, ever, ever, ever advise a founder to do anything like that. Mm-hmm. I think one is fine. I started common by myself. Two is great. Three is workable. Anything above that you got to be real, you got to have a really good reason. Yeah. And I think, you know, remember, we started General Assembly not as a 
not as a scalable business, but kind of as this, you know, cash flow partnership. Yeah. At that point, uh, it's like, let's get as many people involved so we can, you know, yeah. kind of, you know, diversify the work and not, totally. you know, because, yeah. So are you able to share what happened and some of the failures and learnings of that and what perhaps folks that even have one co-founder or two co-founders can avoid? Well, once again, it's, it's, it's also situational and it's very, it's, it's, it's tough to generalize. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say, you know, one thing I, I, I wish we had done sooner is kind of make, made it clear, like, you know, Jake's the CEO. He's a tremendously good CEO, you know, making sure he had that power and, uh, the full authority as CEO was a little bit too much of a democracy in the early days. Um, and I think we could have moved faster, uh, had we moved to an authoritarian model a little bit sooner, I would say. Um, so I think it is important, even if you start kind of as, uh, even equal partners, um, that it is unequivocal who's in charge. Um, you know, that's something I would strongly, strongly recommend to anyone in any kind of co-founder situation, um, is even the, even if there is you know, some sharing of responsibilities, even if equity is split evenly, uh, make sure somebody is running the show. Right. Yeah. Um, so what ended up happening with general assembly and also with you, I think I saw that you were there to like 2015 ish. Um, what happened there? Yeah, totally. So I left in 2015 to start common, uh, really have always been excited about the residential space. Um, also, you know, wanted to, run my own thing. Um, I spent five years at general assembly We'd at that point topped a hundred million in revenue. Um, you know, it would take a, another three years before, uh, we finally exited the business in 2018. Uh, we were acquired by deco for 412 million. So it was a great outcome for everybody. Um, and super thankful for, you know, executives and my co-founder Jake who, uh, stuck around and, um, got that over the line. Uh, so it was, it was, it was a great outcome. Um, you know, I moved on in, uh, 2015 to start common. It's, it's, I've always been passionate about residential ways to make housing better. So, uh, that's why I've been working on, I guess, good Lord for seven years now, almost seven years. What is common? Yeah. So common, um, is, and, how did, and I know you said you have a passion for it, but how did the idea come? And I assume it came while you were at GA. Yeah. So common is a, a residential operator and, uh, brand. And we started initially just focused on co-living. Um, co-living is basically roommates done better. Uh, 25 million Americans live with roommates. Um, it, they are an underserved segment of the market. I mean, when I first moved to New York, uh, working at my game development studio, I rented a room on Craigslist. Um, you know, from a, and you know, I had a great experience. Uh, you know, I rented it from a guy I didn't know at all. Uh, you know, he's a real estate broker. Um, he would wake up eight o'clock every morning, uh, cook bacon and smoke a bowl. And, uh, that was my, uh, that was my introduction to New York. Um, <laughs> but you started smoking bowls and eating bacon, there, there, you know, can't complain. Um, yeah. so that being said, a lot of people who live with the roommates don't have a great experience. Yeah. Um, and so we started common really to address that audience. And one of the great things about co-living is it's, it's a true win-win. There are not many win-wins in residential, in real estate at all. And it's a win-win because on one hand, renters are able to rent at a much lower chunk rent than say a studio apartment. They're able to get into a nicer building than they would be able to otherwise um, without kind of going through the rigmarole, the risk, the pain of Craigslist. Um, and particularly what we're doing is we're, we're building ground up units that are designed with roommates in mind. Um, so it really feels like a great experience, private bathrooms, often, um, ample common area for the people who are living in these spaces. It's also a win for the owner, for the developer, you know, they're able to, um, you know, earn more per square foot, uh, because there is higher density. Uh, so it's one of the few win-wins you really get in real estate. And that's been, um, that's been a strong driver of the business. Um, we've since in around 2019, we, um, you know, expanded beyond co-living, uh, into managing, uh, have full suite of, uh, of, of, of residential product. 
Um, and today we have around 8,000 units under management, another 15,000 units currently signed and under construction. So, Brad, I actually work in uh, real estate as well. So I don't work mm-hmm. on the residential side. I work more on the commercial, like mainly industrial and office side. Yep. Um, but, you know, I'm curious, how does someone that had, again, like it's very similar to GA, had no background perhaps in, you know, teaching or education of technology or coding or product design, et cetera. I mean, how did you teach yourself to, because you said, I think you said you did ground, ground up development. How did that even come to be? I mean, in New York, especially of all places, I, I assume yeah. that's where you started. I mean, it's not the easiest thing to just wake up one day and be like, I'm going to start doing ground up, you know, development. <laughs> yeah, totally. And, and, and to be clear about our role, we do, uh, we do design and we do management. We don't do any development Got it. or Understood. invest in ourselves. Um, so that does make it a lot easier. Yes, it does. There. That just simplified it like tenfold. Yes, absolutely. Um, so the design piece is really using data, insights, things we have to help inform floor plans, finishes, fixtures, furniture, et cetera. Um, and then the management piece is running these buildings once they're once they're open and operating. And there's a there's a uh, feedback loop between those things. Obviously, when we manage, we get a lot of data. We know what works. We know what doesn't work. And we can feed that back into the design. Um, and that's a really important part of what we do. Um, so, yes. And I, I, that being said, there's a very steep learning curve in real estate. Real estate finance, totally different than the finance you encounter as a venture-backed founder. Um, I remember the first time I learned that uh, many real estate owners see a refinance basically taking debt as their exit you know they build they stabilize they refi they go on to the next one uh you know now it's just like well of course that's what happens like that's how it works maybe you sell maybe you refi but at the time it was like well that's 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 absolutely absurd you're taking on debt and that's your exit uh, so I really truly knew nothing about real estate when I started uh, when, I, when when I started common to be clear and so seven um, years in, like, what would you say are some of the biggest kind of challenges that you faced doing this? Yeah. I mean, it's certainly not all been up and to the right. Um, you know, I think you may notice we are like about the last surviving co-living company uh, in existence, um, which is great because it means we have pretty much 100% win rate on co-living deals at this point. Um, you know, I think there's a couple of reasons why co-living has been a very challenging business. Um. One is it takes a long time to build product. Like on average, a ground up deal takes three to four years from us beginning the conversation to actually having a building up and running. Is often we build the con- we begin the conversation when the owner is still like looking at sites, thinking about business plans, and they have to acquire the site, then they have to do the entitlements. Then they have to get their construction financing. Then they actually have to build it. So three to four years is a very reasonable time. Uh, Three to four years is an absolutely unworkable sales cycle in a venture-backed business. Like the worst of the worst of the worst selling into, I don't know, government, K-12, like. Unless you're actually selling the business itself, you know. Yeah, four years. So, um. And one of the reasons we expanded into, into conventional multifamily is just that we were getting killed by our own sales cycle. We would sign a lot of deals um, and, you know, they would be good deals, but it would take a very, very long time for them to deliver. And you're not able to get the scale on an individual deal uh, level if you're doing kind of adaptive reuse, renovations, things like that. Things are The deals are just too small. So that would probably the, been the biggest challenge. Unfortunately, we expanded into conventional multifamily. We have a centralized management model, you know, with a lot of tech and automations, able to generate a lot of OPEX savings on the ground um, for managing these multifamily assets. And that's led to a huge amount of growth over the last two years. And we've gone from 1,500 units under management to today around 8,000. Um, so yeah. the last two years have been really transformative for us. Brad, do you ever plan on getting onto the ownership side of that? So, you know, whether it's doing some sort of a joint venture with those developers or just buying them outright and managing it that way or, or finding perhaps other investors and, you know, managing, um, you know, all of these assets or a portfolio or whatever, or whatever it may be. I mean, is there something that 
you know, can be done to perhaps shorten that cycle uh, to, you know, meet investor demand or venture back demand if that's still the case and also, you know, run a lucrative business. Yeah, totally. Well, we, so, so I'll answer those in the other, the other order. So we've, we've really solved the problem of ground up timing by expanding what we do to include, right. Right. you know, more conventionally designed assets. Yeah, it's like a hedge on your portfolio, essentially. At that yeah, point. I mean, we do a lot of co-living, but, you know, if we have a client and they have a traditional asset delivering next year, right. we're happy to take that over and manage it too, and we can add value there. Sure. So that's a big part of it. Um, in terms of getting involved on the ownership side, it's something we've debated a lot internally in the early years. Um, and we really made a strategic decision not to, um, that we wanted to focus on the management business for a couple of reasons. One is because we believe that there are, um, that we didn't want to mix different types of cash flow, different types of assets in one corporate entity. Uh, we didn't want to, you know, when people bought, Shares of common, we didn't want them to be buying, you know, a little bit of real estate, a little bit of management cash flow, a little bit of tech cash flow. We wanted it to be very straightforward. The second, which is a much bigger deal today, is uh, we don't want to compete against our clients. So, you know, one of the biggest challenges of hiring a property manager is that many residential property managers also own and develop, which means they're using the data from your building to inform their next development. And there's nothing preventing them from buying the site next door and competing against you. And that's something that really bothers a lot of real estate owners and real estate developers is that their vendor is also their competitor. And we believe that there's a big opening for a pure play third party manager uh, to come in with a neutral standpoint. It's not going to prioritize our own deals and it's not going to use our clients data to inform our own development. Sure. Mm. So where does common go from here? Yeah. So today the focus is, is, is really scale. Um, so continuing to expand relationships with our existing uh, clients and accounts, adding a lot more automation onto particularly the leasing and marketing process of what we do. Um, so our plan over the next year is, is, you know, by the end of 2022, we will have a product that lets someone go fully through the leasing process uh, without talking to a human being. If they want to talk to a human being, they're certainly able to do that. Um, and not just book a room the way you would at a hotel, but actually sign, you know, a 12 month lease for a unit. So go through a virtual or self-guided on-site tour, um, you know, go through credit check, background check, income verification, lease paperwork, uh, and move into the unit all automated. So there's a lot of pushes we're doing into some pretty exciting technology. Have you felt as though like tenants want that automation or they still want to talk to that human being? I mean, at the end of the day, you know, whether you're renting, buying, what I've what I've seen personally is that they like that human connection because, I mean, it's a big part and a big expense of your life, whether you're putting a down payment mm-hmm. on a house, buying an investment property or renting an apartment, studio, condo, whatever it may be. It's a pretty big sum of money. Right. And so I'm just curious from you know your perspective and the data that you have, what have you seen in terms of customer response? Yeah, totally. So we see it uh, actually being very age dependent. Uh, you know, Generally people uh, on our side of 30 uh, want to talk to a human, uh, but the younger you go, the more they are excited about not having to do that. Uh, and frankly, virtual touring technology, self-guided tour tech, is good enough at this point that someone can get a really good sense of the unit um, without talking to another human being. Right. And the rest is just automation. It is just software. Um, So we found particularly with our products that tend to target a little bit younger. So, you know, across our entire portfolio, our median age is 29. Um, you know, for our co-living and our micro apartment product, that's going to skew a little bit younger than that. Um, and it's differentiated. You know, if every other owner uh, requires that you, every other manager requires that you, you know, talk to a human and come on site to fill out an application. Uh, and we're saying, no, you can do it all automated. It's all online. It's all self-serve. Uh, that's that's a meaningful differentiator. I, I know that there's like a huge housing crisis throughout the entire United States. 
Uh, I'm not sure what the exact numbers are, but I've heard that we need 10%, at least 10% more than what we have currently. I'm sure that number is probably even higher than what I've last heard it. Um, where where do you think we're going in terms of the rental or renting versus owning kind of, you know, track? You know, are more people still trying to own just like I assume our parents' generation was? Or have they just accepted that, you know what, we don't need to own, we don't want to be in one place, you know, we don't want to commit to a city for the rest of our lives and we're okay renting short term or long term. Well, there's there are a lot of different things going on at once. I mean, one, you have a lot of millennials. Um, you know, the millennials are a pretty large generation. Um, you know, just in terms of generational waves. Yep. There's kind of a peak in sort of what is, you know, would today be 30 to 35. Um, and that's naturally just, you know, secular trends aside. Uh, when people tend to settle down, move out to the suburbs, have kids. Um, so that is going on and that is creating, uh, in addition to what happened with, with the pandemic, a huge rush on single family homes. So single family home prices across the board have just like gone through the roof. Um, that then has trickle down effects into the rental market. So if someone bids on 10 different single family homes and loses every time, they're probably going to renew their lease. Uh, or they may, you know, go and lease a slightly nicer apartment to make room for their new baby, or, you know, they just earn more money, but not enough money to buy a single family home. Um, so it's trickling down through the rental ecosystem. Out of all that, it's very, very tough to identify revealed preference. If you build a single family rental community, it will fill up at above pro forma. If you build a multifamily project in an urban center, with a couple exceptions, it will fill up at above pro forma. So everything's going up right now, but you also have a very inflationary environment. Wages are going up. So it's very, very tough in the current environment to really isolate revealed preference Mm -hmm. from all of this. Everything's just going up. Yeah. Well, that's a really good way of putting it. Um, and just like thinking about all this stuff, because you know it is crazy whether you're buying or renting. It's just a crazy time right now, or selling. It's a yeah, crazy yeah. time right now. Um, but so I guess uh, moving on. I don't know if you had any other questions about Colin, no. but kind of just to like wrap things up. I'm curious. Would you say you're a man of many interests, or <laughs> like not like any interest in particular? Because you know sometimes you come across folks that have this like one track mind of of something that they've always just been burning you know to do whether it's a passion or an interest or something but you know kind of going from what you were doing in college with the furniture stuff to like GA and then to now you know this um what what kind of category do you fall under yeah totally so i do think i have a singular focus but it is a bit more abstract one which is to create things that touch people in a pretty deep and fundamental way. Uh, So if you look at like what ties and, you know, people ask me this, like what ties housing to education? Well, the two biggest areas of consumer spend between the ages of 18 and 35. And there are two things where people have a really, get a really, really big impact from what we're doing, like life-changing impact from what we're doing. They live in our product. Their product changes their career trajectory. So that kind of, you know, high touch uh it really excites me yeah i guess i guess yeah one way to think about it is when if like for example whoever's listening that maybe might be in college or just like kind of like thinking about what to do now you know in that age range um you know whether it's to start a business or kind of go down a certain career path is like having this like personal mission of like what do you what do you want out of it right like what is like the kind of the core piece of it what you know like Obviously, making money is nice, but that'll come, I guess, if you're, you know, right on the on that right track. And so, what is it? And so, you know, that's maybe one way to avoid, you know, constantly thinking about opportunity cost. Am I doing the right thing? Should I be doing something else? Like, is there something else that's, you know, more for me out there? Right? Um, like, like kind of ways to avoid that is like having this core thing to yeah. anchor, anchor yourself to, in a way. Yeah, I, absolutely. And you know, for me, I know I, I like it matters a lot that I'm doing something that is impacting people in a meaningful and positive way. Um, you know, I think working at a company where I'm kind of tweaking an algorithm behind the scenes, 
would be really, really tough. Um, You know, I love that we design and we deliver residential buildings that people live in and people love. Uh, That matters a lot. Actually, one last question. Um, I know you mentioned, or I, I mean, I think I might have read this that you're also doing some investing on the side, um, like with a with a venture firm that had invested in GA. Is that right? Yeah. So I, I was for a period of time in kind of the early days of Common, but um, and they're they're investors in Common, and they're very very good friends of mine. But I'm not I'm not day to day investing with them today. Oh, not anymore. Okay, I was just going to ask. Like, I know there's so many things going on in the tech space. Like, what you're kind of most excited about? But you can you can still answer the question, I guess. Whether or yeah, not you're totally. Look, I am, um, and, and, and this kind of goes back to what I've been doing and what I'm focused on. I think, um, you know, there are a lot of people that are, I think, very rightly focused on, you know, Web3, crypto, all that fun stuff. But I look at it and I'm, I'm like, you know, Web2 still has such low penetration in so many industries that are still living in you know web one or even like pre-web days yeah i really get excited by people who are tackling things that are a little bit off the beaten path you know go back you know to my origins my you know father is a forester it's like what kind of tech are they using uh someone who builds something that serves their needs and makes their lives better and easier even if it's you know web 2 technology that's still a massive improvement over what a lot of these industries are using today. So things that get me excited are, you know, going into big, meaty, hairy spaces, often regulated, um, bringing better kind of technology and better outcomes. I love that. Imagine the forestry world in like Web3, right? Like, I mean, like how would that work? I'm sure there are trees in the metaverse too, you know? Um, there are. <laughs> but I don't think you got but are there foresters it. in the metaverse is the question. I, I don't think so. But there could be Forrester NFTs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Brad, this has been super fun. I mean, I learned a lot and just kind of got so much out of this. I'm sure people listening did too. And, and uh, can't thank you enough for you know, spending your night with us and hanging out and sharing your story and wisdom. And uh, all the best. You know, can't wait to see where things go with Common, but for you personally as well. And um, you know, hope to keep in touch. Awesome. Thank you both so, so, so much for having me on tonight. It's been great. <laughs>